It's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Madeline Brand. Ma yeah. Madeline Brand is a journalist and host of Press Play on KCRW, Southern California's flagship NPR affiliate. She's best known for her 25-year career in public radio, reporting and hosting for NPR in Los Angeles, New York, Washington, and beyond. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Madeline Brand. Thank you so much. It's so great to be back here. Hello, everybody. Uh, so let me introduce the panel. Sitting to my right is Hal Hirschfield, a behavioral psychologist at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He studies how long-term financial and ethical decision-making affects people's well-being. He has also contributed op-eds to the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, among other publications. Next to him is Cassie Holmes. She is a professor of marketing and behavioral decision-making, also at the UCLA Anderson School of Management. And she studies how focusing on time rather than money in increases happiness. Her work has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to The Economist to Scientific American. And next to her is Sonia Lubomirsky. She's a social psychologist at UC Riverside and author of two books on happiness called The How of Happiness and The Myths of Happiness. Okay, so we're really going to get into this happy thing. <laughs> Speaking of clapping, I just want to get a sense of the room. <laughs> and I want to hear by a show of applause, how many people are happy right this minute? Oh, okay, a lot. Well, that's good. That's good. So we're done. All right. No. <laughs> um, I guess I wanted to start by with the basic premise, and that is why should being happy be the goal? Because Happiness can be fleeting. We can do some pretty dumb stuff when we're looking for happiness. And uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> looking at you. So, uh, <laughs> Sonia, let's start with you. Why should that be the goal? Sure. Um, well, happiness doesn't just feel good. Uh, some people think it's just about pleasure, feeling good. Uh, it actually is associated with lots of good things, lots of like successes in life. Um, Two of my colleagues and I actually did a meta-analysis, which is like an analysis of many analyses of um, several hundred studies where we looked at kind of what is happiness associated with. So it turns out that happy people make more money, they're more likely to find marriage partners, they're physically healthier, they're better leaders, they're more resilient, um, and that effect goes both ways, right? So for example, being married makes you happy, but if you're happy, you're actually more likely to get married. So it's not just about feeling good, it actually, if you're happy, you're gonna be more creative, you're gonna be more productive, you'll cope better with challenges, um, so kind of good things also come to you when you're happy. So it's a little bit unfair. So not only do you get to feel good, but you also get to experience all these like successes in different domains of life. So there's a loop. Yes. There. Yes, I think so. And but it spreads. Mm -hmm. It spreads I mean, to yeah. other people. A, a loop with sort of inner, or within mm -hmm. oneself, but also happy people mm -hmm. are nicer. They like other people mm -hmm. more. And then as you're nicer, then you make other people happy, and then they'll be nicer. And so it actually sort of dissipates in a really positive way. And how do you know if you're happy? Mm. Well, this, this is the classic question of, you know, in, in psychology we always talk about variables that are self-report. And, you know, economists will always say, well, how do we know if somebody says something that they actually mean it? And then we always say back to them, well, you know, you go to the eye doctor and you look at, you know, the eye doctor says, well, is this the lens the right lens? And you say, well, yes, it is. And so we sort of just have to trust people. Mm -hmm. When they say something, mm -hmm. we have to believe them. It, mm -hmm. it seems to matter. Their responses seem to also 
map onto all the things that Sonia said they did mm -hmm. too. But isn't there a problem that it's almost like mercury? Like you don't, if you if you're focused on it, mm -hmm. it might slip out of mm -hmm. your out of your grasp. Yeah. That you're happiest when you aren't really trying to be happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's truth well, to that. Um, often, you know, I study how people can become happier. And when you're too focused or too preoccupied on the goal of being happy, it might lead you to kind of monitor yourself too much, like, am I happy yet? Am I happy yet? It might lead you to be, <laughs> uh, you might focus too much kind of on the end goal rather than sort of the journey. You might like be disappointed if you're not happy enough. You might actually feel kind of entitled to happiness. Um, and, so, um, and so really the best strategies to increase happiness are to do sort of other things like to express gratitude to others or to be kind to others, to focus on your goals, not like because you want to be happy, but because, I mean, it's really sort of a bonus. Yeah. Um, Okay, so let's talk then about what makes us happy, because we all want to know secrets to happiness, and we're all going to find out tonight, so that's easy. <laughs> <laughs> so, Cassie, you study whether or not money makes you happy. Yeah. And I would imagine that a certain amount does, in fact, make you happy. Um, so <laughs> Makes her really happy. How much, exactly. She's yeah. so happy right now. <laughs> but actually, it matters far less than yeah. people think. Um, so up to a certain amount, um, income does relate to positive emotion in the day-to-day, -day, but actually um, research, not my own, has found that beyond $75,000 a year, at least this was in 2010 in the U.S. And across the country. Yeah. Across mm -hmm. the country, um, that it actually doesn't translate into feeling happier over the course of your day. And so in my work, and as well as work that Helen and I have worked on together, um, in terms of this question of what's the secret to mm -hmm. happiness, um, the answer is related mm -hmm. to a simple shift and actually focusing on the other resource that we have at our disposal, um, which is time. Mm -hmm. And we find that um, those, so we actually um, surveyed folks from across the US asking the simple question, which do you want more of, more time or more money? And while we found that most Americans would actually prefer to have more money, <laughs> um, those who said they would prefer to have more time um, were um, significantly happier. And that's controlling for how much money or how much time that they have. And so what that's picking up as well as other uh, work of mine where I shift people's attention, not just looking at natural proclivities towards sort of valuing time versus money, but drawing people's attention towards time. It, um, leads to greater happiness because people become more deliberate in how they spend their time. And when, with that deliberation and realizing how sort of precious our time is in the day-to-day, -day, but I think even more so over life as a whole, mm -hmm. then people live in a way that's sort of more consistent with their underlying values and a lot of times are, that is related to things that make mm -hmm. you happier, yeah. like spending time with loved ones. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that, it's, it's not... It's not even just how you spend your time, but also you know, how you spend your money too, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so there's a, a lot of research that's been accumulating looking at just what sort of things are happy people doing with their money. You know, there's this great quote from a colleague of ours, Dan Gilbert uh, and Elizabeth Dunn, where they say, well, if, you know, if money only leads to happiness up to $75,000, then you're probably not spending your money the right way. Mm -hmm. uh, and they sort of go through. There's a number of different things that you can think about, spending on experiences versus material goods and spending on others rather than yourself. And there's a number of other mm -hmm. things like this. But it's, it's really being just like we're thinking about how we spend our time. It's also how we spend our money. Mm -hmm. well, we spend a lot of our time 
in the car here, <laughs> and I'm sure yeah. many of you did this evening, like we did. It's not a happy place. <laughs> no. Right? Yeah. No. I was trying to spin that, but there's just no, 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 no happiness. No. So are Angelinos less happy in general? <laughs> I, I, they don't seem, they seem pretty happy. I think so. The well, sunshine, it counters out, you know. So, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. right. But so what are the strategies when you do have to do stuff that you don't want to do, mm -hmm. and you want to spend your time, and you know that... Let's say you know every, what you just said, that time is the resource that we need to value most because that's what makes us happy, but at the same time, we know that we have to spend two hours in the car every day. How do you then achieve a set, a state right. of okayness with that? Yeah. Well, I like driving in a car, actually. You go all um, the way to Riverside. Yeah, I Santa commute Monica. to Riverside from Santa Monica, but um, but only <laughs> <laughs> but only twice a week, and I carpool, so okay, so I'll, I'll explain why that makes me happy, um, or I listen to audiobooks, that makes me happy too, or music. Um, so my favorite theory in psychology right now is called self-determination theory, um, and it argues that there are sort of three basic needs that we need to satisfy to be happy, and those are the needs for uh, connectedness, the needs for um, autonomy, and the needs for competence. And so basically, whatever you can do in life that can sort of bring up those needs, satisfy those needs, is, is going to make you happier. And so connection is probably the most critical. So you know, when I carpool, I'm with other people, and I strengthen my friendships. Uh, it could be with one friend. It could be with you know, lots of people. It could be your partner. Uh, competence, pursuing life goals that are really important to you, um, you know, gaining mastery over some kind of skill. Um, and control, you know, that's, a, that's kind of a hard one, sort of feeling, you know, we're lucky in sort of in Western countries that most of us, if we're sort of comfortable with our level of, you know, living, uh, standard of living, that we have sort of some control over our days, like over our time, how we spend our time, how we spend our money. And so that's also really important to, um, so, so jobs, for example, like it's better to take a job that gives you more control over your time than to get take a job that takes more money, but gives you less control. Yeah. If you have yeah. a choice. If yeah. you have a choice, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, let's talk about work since we're on that, to on that topic. And work is obviously associated with money. And mm -hmm. so you have done research where actually mentioning the word money mm -hmm. makes people unhappy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Right? <laughs> well, mm -hmm. yeah, this is um, sort of touching back to what I was talking about before, where leading people to focus on money um, motivates mm -hmm. them towards particular behaviors compared to leading them to focus on time. And one of those behaviors that um, people sort of gets activated when focused on money is working. And if, um, if we're you know, thinking about how people spend their time and what are those activities that are associated with mm -hmm. most positive emotion and most negative emotion, um, work that is sort of tracking the typical American um, identifying those activities that are sort of the least happy. On average, unfortunately, work is amongst them. H housework, commuting, mm -hmm. and work. Mm -hmm. And that's a bummer because for many of us, that's how we spend most of our waking <laughs> lives. Um, and so I think it sort of nicely gets to your question before when we were talking about commuting. Given that we spend so much time at work, mm -hmm. um, how can we sort of craft the work that we do, or, you know, like, ideally you choose a profession that is in line with your strengths and things that you care about, but given you're in a particular job, how can you craft that job to optimize on these dimensions of connectedness? So, like, having a bestie at work, or <laughs> <laughs> Hal and I work together. Um, 
or uh, you know, having that yeah. sense of autonomy or confidence mm -hmm. of um, sort of signing up for those projects um, or crafting your day mm -hmm. such that you're spending those hours and working on those projects that you're really good at and you're going to feel really good about. So it's like given that you're spending time in a particular way, how do you optimize even with, within a particular activity? Well, I guess that's also what I was wondering with the initial question about the pursuit of happiness versus, and I don't know if it's a versus, the pursuit of meaning and fulfillment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I th I've, this is, oh, sorry. Yes, please. I, no. I think this is a fascinating question because you started and you said, is you know, happiness the right thing to be pursuing? And I was going to say, to some extent, happiness is really important, mm -hmm. uh, but meaning uh, and the pursuit of meaning may be more important. It's more longer lasting. And you know, this is one of these things where psychologists talk about the difference between meaning and happiness. Mm -hmm. And they say meaning is the type of thing that we feel and it connects us to our past and to our future and it lasts over a long period of time. And, and, and it connects us to others, and it's not always happy. Uh, the sort of classic example is, you know, if you're climbing a mountain, that may not be a happy experience, but it's a meaningful one, and that may matter for long-term well-being. Now, if you actually talk to people and not psychologists, mm -hmm. there's some sort of blending between happiness and meaning. But the important thing with meaning is that it really is sort of a deeper, a deeper emotion, a deeper feeling. And many of the same things that we pursue when we pursue happiness can also lead to meaning mm -hmm. if done the right way over time in sort of an extended mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. um, but they're related. Yes. I mean, we're actually mm -hmm. analyzing data right now, mm -hmm. um, Gallup data that looks both within the US as well as across the globe, looking at what's the relationship between meaning and happiness. And they are significantly positively related across the world. Um, and certainly there's some, uh, we're actually looking at the effect of wealth on the relationship between meaning and happiness. Um, and you see that there's an, an effect. So actually lower income um, folks, uh, the correlation is uh, stronger. Um, but across people, they're tightly correlated. Um, and so while certainly there's things that can make you happy that don't give you much meaning, mm -hmm. and there are certainly the, you know, things that make you feel meaning that aren't particularly fun, um, they, they do go hand in hand. During the, or after? So after you've climbed the mountain, you're like, right. oh, yeah, I feel right. great, yeah. I'm happy, but not when you're actually on it. Well, often hand, during, um, but in those cases where there, you know, there are those examples where they sort of, they're not temporally um, synchronized. Right. Sonia. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Thank oh, you. Sorry. I was going to challenge Hal a little bit. Um, to say the same thing that, that they almost always go together. I mean, there is that kind of Mother Teresa example, right? Where there's a, you have a lot of meaning, but you're really unhappy. But really, those are the exceptions to the rule. Um, they mostly go together. So my favorite studies. People are asked every day, how much meaning are you experiencing today? How much sort of positive emotion are you experiencing today? How, how much happiness? And you know, meaningful days are happy days, and happy days are meaningful days. Um, so they usually go together. But you know, the times that they're, they don't go together actually um, are revealing. Mm -hmm. OK. Who are the unhappiest people? <laughs> yes. 14 uh, to 28. Really? And yeah, I've seen. That? I mean, uh, lots of surveys. Yeah, you just do. Are you disagreeing? 
I was going to yeah. say 40 to 40. <laughs> <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> Once the kids leave. Well, then, that, yeah. okay, that, those are economist data where right, they control right, for everything. So right. when you control for all the things that actually make people happy, it looks like middle age is the least happy. But if you just look at raw data, 14 to 28 is, by, is the least happy. And then it gets, it gets higher and higher and... The peak is, depending on the study, the peak is around, like there's three studies I know of, 62 in one study, 67, I think it's 72 in a third study. And then it goes down after that. Right. So people in their 60s are the happiest. On average. On average. Of course, oh. it, there's um, lots of depression something. also in old age too, so this is an average. Mm -hmm. And also um, the way happiness is experienced shifts over the mm -hmm. course of life. Right. So um, in some of my work, we've been looking at um, how does happiness feel? Um, finding within the U.S. that amongst younger people, um, it's more about excitement. Um, and as you get older, it becomes more associated with feeling calm and contentment. Um, and so, I mean, picking up on this question of when people are answering that survey item of how happy are you, they're answering different questions yeah. at different points in their life, which is, I think, why some of the discrepancy comes out in the data of what people are saying when they say they feel happy across And different life. places around the world, too. Right. right yeah. yeah. Why, Sonia, why did you say that young people are the unhappiest? Well, this it comes from surveys. Um, but what is it I mean, why? I mean, I think it's because they don't, they, you know, they're still finding their identity. They don't have, you know, when you think about autonomy, competence, connectedness, they, um, you know, they don't have control over their lives, you know, as much as we, older people, they're not as sort of emotionally wise. They're not as competent yet, sort of, at anything. Um, well, uh, many things. <laughs> um, you know, we get more competent with time. And then, actually, mo more recently, um, there's data showing that this, this generation, the latest generation, which you call Generation Z or the I generation, are even ha less happy. And there's more depression, lower self-esteem, more anxiety. We all know there's a mental health crisis on college campuses. Um, my, my friend Jean Twenge, who re does research on this, um, has a book called iGen, and she argues that it's smartphone use, that it's screen, screen time and social media, and that it's a correlation, so we don't, we don't really know what the cause is. Um, so, so younger people are getting even less, I guess, less happy uh, than, than previous generations. You can also yeah. contrast it with, you know, you can answer the question another way, which is who are happier, and it's, as you said, it's older people. And part of the reason why is, uh, and this comes from research from Laura Carstensen's lab um, at Stanford, and older people can focus more on emotionally meaningful goals. They don't have to focus as much on getting information and taking a class and hanging out with friends that might not be their best friend, but maybe they have some social use to them or something like that, <laughs> like, like younger people have to do, right? And so as we get older, we can focus more on the things that are actually meaningful to us. And you can look at social networks being pruned. It's not a bad thing. It's that older people are spending time with the people who they really want to spend time with. Yeah, I mean, I love Laura, Laura's yeah. studies where she asked people, you know, if you could go have lunch with anyone, like you could have lunch with uh, your best friend or your sister or like a famous author or someone famous that you want to meet, like who would you choose? And younger people are more likely to choose like the famous author. Older people, and we're talking about over 60, I right, believe, right? right yeah. are, would, would say their sister, their best friend. So it's kind of like they know what makes them happy and they do it. They do it, yeah. And then younger people take more risks, which is totally appropriate. Um, but doesn't, those risks don't always make them happier. Yeah, and also yeah. as people get older, they get better at savoring or sort of appreciating what they do have, those little ordinary moments, whereas younger people, their happiness sort of really um, sort of 
they need the extraordinary to feel that, um, what they would call happy, happiness. Um, but uh, the happiness that people um, sort of enjoy from mundane experiences and moments increases with age. And so mm -hmm. that's another contributor to the sort of <laughs> in one's 60s um, that, as I've sort of said, happiness feels a little different, but also you're sort of allowing yourself to feel happier from more places. So Hal, you study, or you, you try to get people to think of themselves in the future yeah. and plan for the future, for right. their future selves, right. which is very difficult to do because people don't want to admit that they're going to die. Yeah. <laughs> you got right to <laughs> or, it there. Or get old, <laughs> for that matter. <laughs> So, but how is that linked with happiness when you're contemplating your own mortality? Well, you know, there's, this is an interesting, um, that's a really interesting question. Because um, normally you say something like thinking about death, that doesn't normally lend people to say, oh, that should be happy. Um, one of the things we do know from the research is that when people think about endings, when they think about meaningful endings, it focuses them on the emotionally meaningful things in their lives. And so they start spending their time doing the things that really give them happiness and give them meaning. There's classic studies looking at, well, older people, but also graduating college seniors. So it's sort of a little microcosm of age right there. Even though they're graduating and they're going to, they're only 22, they also are having a very real and salient ending in their lives. And you start seeing them spending more time with their closest friends mm -hmm. and not all of their friends. You start seeing them sort of focusing on the things at school that really bring them meaning. And so, when we say let's focus all the way in the distant, now I should say a lot of my research doesn't get people to think all the way to death because, well. Yes. Yeah. That's a bummer. It's yeah. a bummer. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but we do sometimes get people to think about meaningful endings, and that's sort of a proxy for the end of life. And that in itself can breed these feelings of positivity and happiness and more of a focus on spending one's time doing the things that matter. But also yeah. financially, you yeah. have to get people to recognize that they're going to need some money exactly and that and a large part of this is simply saying you can't ignore that eventually you will become some future version of yourself you can't ignore that there'll be this distant time in your life that you need to fund and if you want to have sort of your same level of happiness and your same level of well-being it may be good to start thinking about how that time in your life will be funded or 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 how you'll do different work or spend your time doing meaningful work and change careers, et cetera. Mm -hmm. but I thought we're some... not supposed to talk about money. We're not supposed oh, sorry. to. sorry. Well, yeah. You know. That's not making but he's a business school. <laughs> right. <laughs> we don't say money. We say yeah. cash. So. Oh. <laughs> or, or resources. Yeah, yeah. resources. <laughs> but, but resources. yeah, so but is there a certain amount? So getting back to the, the time money thing, is there a certain amount of work like a, 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 that has been studied in terms of hours and in terms of... Um, results, that's the sweet spot. Um, so we're actually yeah. uh, exploring that right now of what's the relationship between the amount of discretionary time you have and your life satisfaction. And we actually went into it, um, you know, in our very sort of stressed out, time-constrained lives of like really stressed. And if only we could have more time. Um, and so then we were exploring, well, what if we did have more time? And so we've been looking at, again, within the US, across um, tens of thousands of working Americans, what's that relationship? And we see uh, sort of inverted U. So if you have a little bit of discretionary time, so time 
after work that you have to do with what you will, that's bad. But more discretionary time doesn't always lead to greater happiness, and you actually see this dip. And this picks up on like, you know, how could it be that sort of more time to do whatever you want could lead to less happiness? And we're unpacking that now, and it seems to be related to the sense of purpose. And if you are sort of filling your days, if there's sort of too much time to fill, then you start losing that sense of purpose, and then pulling back to what we were talking about before, this relationship between purpose and meaning and happiness. And so um, the, we find that for working Americans, it's about 2.5 hours on a work week is where you see that more isn't better. Um, which five hours of, of leisure? Of leisure, uh -huh. which to me sounds like a lot of time. Wait, but per day? Per day. It seems like a lot of time. Now, per day. note that how we define discretionary time right. differs, it's right? It's not so. include commuting. <laughs> <laughs> no. It <laughs> does not include Unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so. Because people think discretionary enough. time, they think that that means sitting around doing absolutely nothing. Mm -hmm. But it could mean spending time with your kids in a, in a way that you want to spend time. <laughs> not, not bath time, but uh, doing something that you want to do with your kids. And that, you know, so there's all different definitions of discretionary time that we've tried to unpack in this work here. What about the fact that we tend to be filling our discretionary time with all sorts of activities and distracting ourselves on our phones or TV or what have you and not being in the moment? Have you studied that as to how it affects happiness? I mean, I haven't studied it personally, but there's certainly, that's going <laughs> to, someone <laughs> likes to study that. I, <laughs> um, I mean, it's become kind of this buzz concept, right? Like being present and mindful. Yeah. So, but there are tons of studies, actually, that people who practice mindfulness become happy, all kind, not just happier, you know, more resilient, like their grades improve. Uh, lots of good things to their fit. Their health improves. Right. So there's something to be said, you know, for like stopping and smelling the roses. And there's research on savoring and, you know, sort of savoring. I kind of put them all in kind of a similar category. And actually, I think they all have to do with attention. Um, and, you know, William James has this great quote. And he says, Atten experience is what I agree to attend to. So my experience is what I agree to attend to. So it's basically like what you decide to direct your attention to is your experience. And so you can direct your attention to that rose that you're smelling or to your kid or to your work or to the TV show. Um, or you could be ruminating about something bad that happened or you know, remembering something negative. Um, that, that, that is appropriate at times. So we don't want to only focus on the positive. But, but there's definitely research on kind of you know, the importance of what you direct your attention to and posi positive things, and that's what older people do, they, they direct attention more to positive things. That is associated with not only well-being, but other good outcomes. But sometimes we need to like face our problems too, so uh, we shouldn't just only, only be positive all the time. But there is something pleasurable, right, about going mm -hmm. online and distracting ourselves with like an Instagram or a funny Twitter or text or what mm -hmm. have you. That's, that must hit some kind of thing in your brain, some rat right. thing that you want to keep <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But getting But it's pleasurable, that. but sort of picking yeah. up on the yeah. three things that are mm -hmm. so critical to mm -hmm. um, our well-being, with connectedness being one of them. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, the sort of consequence of being on your phone is that the people that you're actually with, you're less connected to them. Mm -hmm. And so you get the mm -hmm. sort of hit on happiness there. Um, and. Uh, so picking up on this idea of attending to the present moment um, and this idea of how much discretionary time one needs, 
um, there are ways to sort of um, kick you into noticing. So as I was saying before about older people being more attentive um, to the president, sort of likely to savor, mm -hmm. um, that we, you know, th this is available to all of us. And so um, in a, a sort of fun project I'm working on right now, looking at um, vacation time. Um, well, so us as Americans actually don't take a lot of vacation, and mm -hmm. um, more than half of Americans leave some of their paid vacation days on the table. Mm -hmm. um, because of time and money constraints, mm -hmm. um, and so in a project that we were sort of trying to think of, how can, and mm -hmm. by the way, vacation is associated with greater happiness, mm -hmm. and so we were wondering how can we sort of mm -hmm. help Americans um, mm -hmm. enjoy the emotional benefits of vacation without mm -hmm. actually sort of taking off time mm -hmm. from work and spending more money. And so we ran a study, a couple studies actually, of on a Friday amongst working Americans, mm -hmm. we simply told half of them, um, treat this weekend like a vacation, and the other half, treat this weekend like a regular weekend, followed up with them on Monday to see how happy they were. And what we found was mm -hmm. that simply being prompted to treat their weekend, which is time off from work, like a vacation, made them happier. And the reason mm -hmm. is, is not because it actually changed the way they spent their time, but it was the extent to which they were attentive to the moment over the weekend. Mm -hmm. So they were less on their phones, and they enjoyed the weekend. Mm -hmm. It sort of opened up this space for them to be, be with the people around them that they were already mm -hmm. with anyways. And so again, sort of highlighting, it's really not how much time you have, it's your mindset <laughs> during mm. that time. Um, and with, uh, you know, it's already been mm. sort of touched on mm. the role of social media has been mm. shown to be, have a negative effect mm. uh, for multiple reasons, mm. but one of them might be just sort of pulling you out of the present. And being isolated. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Let's talk about genetics, because there are happy, smiley people who just are happy, smiley people. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that's just who they are. And then there's the rest of us. <laughs> um, the, and some cultures, I don't know, I single out Russians, but yeah. some cultures <laughs> seem to have to be a little more doer yeah. than others. Um, what is the role of genetics when it comes to happiness? Um, well, there's definitely a genetic influence on happiness. And if you look around you, I mean, there are some people who are naturally happier than others. Um, the data come from studies of twins. So this is a whole field called behavior genetics. Um, and those studies compare um, identical twins and fraternal twins. So identical twins share 100% of their DNA. Fraternal twins, who are like siblings, share 50% of their DNA. And so what the studies show is that identical twins are much more similar in their happiness levels than our fraternal twins. And that suggests that there's a genetic component to happiness, a heritable component, like there is, by the way, to almost everything else, like to your weight and whether you have blood pressure, whether you're going to develop hypertension or depression, or even like love of jazz music has a genetic component. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so there's definitely, it's Related true. Related to happiness or not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Someone should do that study. So... Um, Anyway, it's true. Some, some people are just naturally happier than others. And the way that I think about it is that the ones who are less happy, if they want to be happier, and by the way, I have, I have plenty of friends who are like, they're unhappy, and they think they see the world as it really is, and everyone else sees the world through rose-colored glasses, and they don't want to be happier. And that's fine. That's fine. They, you know. But if you want to be happier and you're unhappy, you just have to work harder at it if you have kind of like lost the genetic lottery 
because uh, you can change it, you just it's just going to take more effort. Kind of like if your set point for weight is higher than you like, you just have to. Some people, right, are naturally thin, and they don't have to try hard at it. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. What about drugs? <laughs> is there a follow up there? That's just <laughs> nope. <laughs> just gotta leave that there. What about them? If you don't want to work at it <laughs> that hard. What kind of drugs? Yeah, those type of drugs we're talking about. Well, I was talking about legal drugs. Yeah. We yeah. can talk about whatever you want. But I mean, a lot of people are on antidepressants in this country, right? And so is that okay? I mean, for people who are severely depressed, Absolutely. of course. I mean, yeah. Although it only helps about a third of depressed people. But you know, a lot of people wonder, like, well, I'm not depressed. What if I took an antidepressant? Would that make me happier? <laughs> so that study has been done, and it was done by Brian Knudsen, who was a, who was a professor at Stanford. Um, and he gave an antidepressant to sort of normal, healthy people. And what he found is it didn't make them happier, but it reduced negative emotions. So people felt less angry, less anxious, less sad, which actually could translate into being happy. happy. Yeah. But they, it didn't increase positive. It wasn't like ecstasy or other recreational drugs actually could m make you happier. So, but antidepressants just made you less unhappy. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there is this, this kind of, you know, prohibition in our society for taking illegal drugs. And yet, if there is this mandate in the Declaration of Independence that we should pursue happiness. <laughs> 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 you see that? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> well, it is our national religion in a way that Am Americans are trying to pursue yeah. happiness. And yet, there are so many roadblocks put in our, in our way. <laughs> We're in California. Yeah. Right, exactly. <clears throat> yeah. So, but, um, <laughs> is, do you actually, serious question, do you study the difference between artificially induced happiness mm. and organically induced happiness? Is there a difference in quality? Huh. No. But, but there, are, yeah. there is, no. No? <laughs> I haven't studied yeah. that question. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah. But I have, I mean, maybe the closest thing, not <laughs> like specifically related to drugs, but this question of, being happy in the moment versus looking back on a time as happy. And one, you, you might argue that, you know, a drug state is sort of, you might feel it, but do you even remember it? Um, and so, sort of curious about this um, trade, or like this juxtaposition of which of these forms of happiness should we experience, sort of being happy in your life or sort of being happy about your life that you could reflect back. Mm -hmm. um, I don't have an uh, actual answer to it, but I did ask, I surveyed, um, again, thousands of Americans, asking them which of these forms of happiness would you prefer. Um, and what I found was sort of interesting that uh, for when thinking about one's life as a whole, or actually anything longer than a year, um, the majority of Americans, around 75%, will say they would prefer to experience that time as happy. Um, but if you get to actual shorter periods of time, like if I ask you for the next hour, interestingly, and maybe this is actually the opposite prediction you might make given that this question came out of the drug comment, but um, that actually the answer is less clear. So 50% will say they actually would prefer to wait to feel happy 
um, versus feel happy in the moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd, it's sort of a curious thing. So I think that there, it, it is picking up on, we believe that we should feel happy, that like it's not inauthentic, at least if you ask people. Um, but we often make decisions, and I would say sort of in a, um, you know, with our Puritan ethic, <laughs> like, you know, we shouldn't necessarily always feel happy, you know, right now, you know, in this next moment. Because we have work to do. Yeah, <laughs> we have work to do, and you want to look back and feel okay with that time you spent. Um, but then I think the sort of interesting implication there is that if we are constantly deciding what we're going to be doing in the next hour, then you might end up living a different form of happiness than if I ask you, what is your version? What do you think is a happy life? Um, so... Okay, let's. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on the the topic of today's. <laughs> I think we've been talking about happiness, but but there was a specific angle in the description of tonight's yeah. program, and that is how to be happy in an unhappy time. And so I'm going to inject some politics into this discussion well, a little bit. I was going to tell you about this really fun study first. Can I? Oh do yeah, that? please. Yeah, yeah. Let's get. Let's Before do we go first. to the negative part, because it because it has to do with waiting to be happy. And actually, I forget who did the study, but you know, before when we were in the green room, we were talking about our celebrity crushes. Mm -hmm. and it was actually a study of celebrity crushes. And so people were asked, imagine your celebrity crush and you could kiss them. Consensually. Right? Consensually. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying that. Thank you. You, get, you, have, you have an opportunity to kiss your celebrity crush and you could do it right now. All right, they're going to walk out right now or in three days. And what do you choose? Three days. Right, everyone chooses three days because you'd rather... <laughs> Fresh you your teeth. Put your makeup on, yeah. <laughs> you, 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 you want to wait, you wait for but it. But you, you want to savor it. You savor it. Savor the memory. Yeah. 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 Fun. All and right, now, are, yeah. now we can talk about the unhappy stuff. Okay. So I think a lot of people are feeling anxious and unhappy about what's going yeah. on in the world. And it seems like there are a lot of big, huge problems that are insurmountable um, when you think about it in a really deep way. And or not even such a deep way, but just think about it a little bit. Um, ooh, things, things are rough out there. Um, so <laughs> I guess it's how do yeah. you, let's say you are, you, want, you are a happy, smiley person normally, but this is just weighing on you. Yeah. How do we deal with this? What should we do? So, anyway. not listen to the news. <laughs> no, you know I think um, it's funny. I think part of that question comes from this. There's there's an assumption that you can't have both. That you can't both be upset about the world and happy. Uh, and this is actually a bit of a, a sort of a misleading idea. There's 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 a lot of really interesting research that suggests that people can feel happy and sad at the same time. And some of some of essentially getting ahead, getting older, uh, going back to some of that research we're talking about, older people. Older people are better at recognizing this, that they can experience both happiness and sadness, or both happiness and anxiety. Maybe that's more apropos. Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, and I think when you start thinking that because I'm sad, I can't be happy, then it may be, I won't say my political beliefs, but it may be like at least two years before I could feel happy again, right? <laughs> um, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I thought that was okay to say. Um, uh, you know, but there, there's been really interesting studies on uh, cancer patients um, who have shown that 
some of the best coping is done. There's, there's a, a wonderful quote from one of these papers where David Spiegel is the author, and he talks about one of the patients who says, she felt like she could never be happy until the cancer was in remission. And then realizing that that wasn't going to come, uh, the, the patient talks about how she, she had a love for opera, and she said she was never going to go to opera until she was in remission. And then she realized that won't, be, that won't happen, and so she said, I went to the opera, my cancer was right there with me, but I was still happy, I enjoyed it, it was a, it was a meaningful moment. And I think you know, that's a, a very intense way of thinking about it, but I think the same lesson applies, that you can experience both, and they can both be there, and they can alternate, but just because we're anxious or sad or the world is tough, doesn't mean that there can't be moments, day-to-day -day moments, uh, of happiness. Um. Before we get to the questions, audience questions, I just wanted to read this proverb that someone told me, um, which I think I'd love to get your comments on it. It's a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to be happy for an hour, take a nap. If you want to be happy for a day, go fishing. If you want to be happy for a month, just a month, get married. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to be happy for a year, inherit a fortune. And if you want to be happy for life, help another person. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, do you find um, truth in that? I actually have a slide of that proverb oh. in my talks. Um, it's great. Um, and the reason is because I study acts of kindness as you know, doing acts of helping others as one way to become happy. And, and it's interesting because um, you know, there's a huge study that followed people over time, and it showed that the boost from, hap from marriage actually is two years. So. So if we wanted to really make it accurate, right? So it's two years from marriage, and then fortune, it's a little bit hard to, yeah. hard to identify the length of the duration of that. But, um, but when you help others, like, you know, it, it, it boosts connectedness, right? It makes you feel more connected, just makes you feel good about the world, makes you feel good about yourself. You might make friends, strengthen relationships. Um, and so that's actually, that actually leads back to a question we were talking about before about like artificial versus sort of real happiness. What about like, does it matter what the source of happiness is, right? Like if you're happy because you just had a piece of chocolate or, um, you know, or a drug or uh, you help someone, right? So like, does that matter? And it doesn't really matter in the moment. You might feel the same level of happiness, but it matters in that one of those things, types of happiness, sort of self-reinforcing and perpetuating and the other one is not, it's, it's transient. And may actually even lead you to feel guilty or kind of bad later on. Mm. So it does matter what the source of happiness is. And with that mm -hmm. sort of giving or helping, yeah. it sort of pulls on one of those other dimensions of feeling a sense of capability or competence that is like you get the connection and you feel like you've affected something in a positive way. And yeah. so there's a lot of benefit from that too. You can also add on to that that some of these acts of kindness, the social connections, breed, it's not just the anticipation, but also the retrospective aspect to it. You know, you have an experience with somebody else, it's easier to think back on that and think about that happy time. That, that lasts longer than maybe something that's just for yourself or just in the moment. Mm -hmm. And we actually do studies where we ask people, either do acts of kindness for others, like do three acts of kindness for others, uh, you know, every Monday for the next month, or do three acts of kindness for yourself. Um, and so it's a really nice comparison because doing acts of kindness for yourself, and by, the, by that we kind of mean you can have like a nice lunch or take a nap or get a massage, sort of self-indulgent things. It does make you happy temporarily, but it doesn't last. And we even have found effects on uh, immune, immune system, so sort of physical health effects as well, which we're trying to replicate right now. But um, 
So, yeah. So we hear a lot of self-care. We should own self-care and all that. So actually, self-care is, the better self-care is helping someone else, not yourself. Unless you're not, it depends where you are, right? Yeah. So like if you're depressed, if you have a clinical condition, like self-care is the first thing you want to do, yeah. right? You want to, you want to like dress nicely and, you know, and do something, de-stress yourself. Um, but after that comes, you know, I, I think one of the most, I think one of the most toxic things is too much self-focus and self-absorption. Like I think the cause of many of life's problems is, is from too much self-focus. And again, getting back to attention and where it's directed to, is it directed to yourself or is it directed to others? So, so helping others takes the focus off of you and onto someone else. Unless you're one of those people who just is totally like a total caregiver and doesn't pay any attention to yourself. Right. And then, then there, you know, moderation and everything is right. what I would say. Right. Yeah. yeah, and of, like oftentimes we sort of feel too busy yeah. <laughs> to take the time to um, do something for someone else. Um, but we found actually that um, spending time on someone else versus spending time on yourself makes you feel like you have more time. Um, and it's actually pulling from this sort of sense of efficacy. Like for those that we had, we made people do nice things for others. Um, and at the end of the day, they felt like they had more time. And it's because they felt like they accomplished more. And in realizing how much you can do, it gives you a sense of how much you can sort of do more broadly and makes you feel like you have more time. So despite our tendency when we feel time constrained to be really stingy with our time and close in, um, our work suggests that you should actually take the time and it will sort of open you up and make you feel sort of like you can do more. Well, that's a great note to open it up to the questions, to the audience. And Hello. Uh, my name is Duncan Earl. I'm an anthropologist. I had a, a colleague who did some research on pain, and he came to the conclusion that pain is really construed rather differently in different cultures. Not only quantity, which is the part we usually think about, but also in the quality that pain has. So my question is, how do we, in a cross-cultural sense, or even a cross-ethnic sense within our own society, really even measure what happiness is, mm -hmm. if happiness ultimately is a cultural construction? You're absolutely right. Um, and there are cultural differences in the definitions of happiness. There's a paper that was published recently that just looked at the word happiness. And so, for example, um, hap means luck. So in a lot of cultures, the word happiness is related to fortune or luck. So the idea that when, you're, when you have good fortune, then you're happy. Um, and so there, those, that connotation has sort of lost, been lost in, in, our, in English. So now um, we talk about happiness as sort of more of an internal kind of subjective sense of well-being. Um, so, uh, but yes, absolutely, you know, um, uh, Cassie mentioned um, how older and younger people experience sort of different kinds of emotions as happy, sort of enthusiasm, excitement, as opposed to tranquility and serenity. It turns out that, um, you know, in Asian cultures, people's sort of ideal affect is more kind of tranquil, serene, as opposed to, so when they say happy, they're really talking about mm -hmm. tranquility, when in Western cultures, it's more about enthusiasm and excitement. Um, I don't know, I mean, I was born in Russia, where people talk about the importance of suffering. And, you know, suffering is important before, because it builds character, uh, and it helps you gain salvation into the next life. So there's also some Buddhist notions surrounding that. So obviously there's lots of different concepts. It would be too long to answer that question. But actually, even in Russia, I did a survey and asked parents, what do you want most for your children? 
and Russians said, I want my children to be happy. So, you know, they, they you know, so maybe it's, it depends how you ask the question, but um, it's, you're right, and I, I think it's just, it would just take us, like, hours to, to answer that. Did you want to add that? No, I was going to say the same thing about the different cultural yeah. valuations yeah. on yeah. happiness. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. just want to say thank you. This was a really great panel. Um, man, I kind of just blanked for a second. Uh, I wanted to say, um, so it almost seems like the, the subject um, is predicated on the notion that uh, almost like a sense of purpose is like what the ultimate driver of happiness is. Uh, for me, I kind of see it as, um, do you think there's a, a correlation from how we react to things uh, and whether or not that makes us happy? So for example, the topic was how to be happy in an unhappy time. Uh, do you think that a lot of the unhappiness is how we're reacting to this unhappy time versus kind of reacting or taking a different approach to it? It's how you react rather than the yeah. actual facts of the, of the situation. Uh, so picking up on, uh, Sonia has this wonderful model of sort of the determinants of happiness. And she's already talked about how your sort of disposition is uh, a big determinant in her model, which I always quote as sort of 50%. Um, and the reason that that has such a big effect is because it's that natural tendency to see the positive versus the negative in situations. And when I was sort of thinking about the framing of the tonight's panel of how to be unhappy in a unhappy world and even your first question of like who cares about happiness you know is this the sort of frivolous thing and I, the answer is that it's our our level of happiness is sort of it's if we think of sort of physical immune system you know when you're you're you have a healthy immune system that you get less sick and you're less sick you're sick for less amount of time it's similar with happiness that when you feel happy, it's not that you don't experience or are not aware of those negative things. It's just the impact on it is less intense and you, react, uh, you sort of rally more quickly. And um, there's a lot of benefit to that because from the happiness, it makes people more motivated. It makes them feel you know, less debilitated, like we can actually do good and be good. And, um, not sort of closing ourselves off from the world. So I'll just say that um, it's sort of that immune system that keeps us um, going. You know, I've seen research on construct validity for things like extroversion and introversion. And, you know, uh, people that don't know a lot about this area will be, oh, these are just dumb theories. But, you know, in the research I've seen, they, I think they gave some caffeine unbeknownst to the person that was, you know, in the experiment. And then they would have them maybe, you know, work out a problem in a room. And the folks that had previously identified as extroverts or introverts, uh, the extroverts had no problem with extra caffeine added, blaring music. They could perform equally well. And the introverts, you know, did much worse, which clearly suggests that, you know, people that are introverts, there is actually something physio physiological. And they did other things like measure skin conductance, electricity, et cetera. So when it comes to happiness, I, I have to wonder, like, you know, everybody talks about it like a blasé, common currency, but it may actually differ across individuals. And maybe, you know, when we talk about cultures and why they view it differently, you know, maybe there's something genetic that makes different people perceive the same thing differently. I'm just wondering if there's any sort of research, I guess, into that sort of area of happiness. I mean, I think this sort of comes back to, Sonia's really more the expert on this, if you wanna. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, happy and unhappy people are different. Um, actually, I started doing research on this 
when I was a grad student, and the first question that we asked was sort of what, why are happy and unhappy people different? Yeah. And so part of the reason is that they're, they're genetic differences, uh, um, and they see the world differently. They construe, the, I mean, uh, I have a theory called sort of the construal theory of happiness, which basically says that, you know, what you would think, which is that, you know, happy people just construe the same situation differently, right? So you're watching the same thing on TV and you're a happy person, unhappy person, and you're gonna react differently, right? So you might, might both be, as you mentioned, might both be upset or angry or anxious, but the happy person is gonna recover faster. They're gonna be, you know, right, more inspired, motivated. They might do something about the state of the world. They might go and like protest or go call their congressperson or, you know, do something. Um, they might, and then they, they, they might go do something else and, and compartmentalize it, right? So one way that I think about like this sort of being happy and sad or angry at the same time is that happy people are able to compartmentalize things. So, so the example that, that I, I give is um, I had a friend whose mom was dying and not only was she caring for her, but she also was like really very stressful because with the medical bills, but she loved going to the farmer's market and so she like spent most of her time caring for her mom, but one, but then like twice a week she would go to this lovely farmer's market in Santa Monica, and she would just really be happy. And so she was able to compartmentalize that. And so that's that's one sort of skill that happy people have that I think we all can learn too. So so that's the other lesson from this is that one thing that researchers do is they look at kind of the skills or the habits or the sort of strategies of happy of naturally happy people, the ones who are lucky to be born that way. Although there's really a range, it's not like it's not an extreme, um, and then try to teach anyone who wants to learn those kinds of ways of being or habits or strategies. Uh, I, I was just yeah. going to add. Yeah. What, I, what I was trying to get at is, you know, you, you will see people pick different careers mm -hmm. or pick different leisure activities. Mm -hmm. So some people, mm -hmm. you know, skydiving, that's like, ooh, let's go do it. And other people are like, no thanks, right? Mm -hmm. And their idea of a good time may be, mm -hmm. you know, chilling out at the beach, reading a book or something, and they think that's just. And, and it may just be, hey, they're wired differently, and both of them are content in different ways and mm -hmm. seek out different things. Um, and so I just you know, wonder when there's a lot of happiness research being done, to what degree the fact that they're just maybe uh, different in how people are wired and what actually mm -hmm. brings them you know, happiness. Right. They are, they are, but it doesn't mean, if you're wired differently, it doesn't mean that you can't change. Right. My name is Reggie McKinley, and uh, I'm kind of more rubber on the ground meets the road question with you guys around anxiety and career switching. So I did, I was a written fellow at UCLA at Anderson and I was asked to, <laughs> yeah, right. In your class. I was, right, I was asked to be, um, to pursue a PhD by Lydia Hyman before she retired. Mm -hmm. And I went to PhD project and all this stuff. And then as I started looking into potentially pursuing a PhD in business, specifically studying like organizational change and happiness, prospects kind of just felt like they d wouldn't exist for me when I came out in five years. Mm. And being a millennial, that's not the younger side. Mm -hmm. I had like really conceptually thinking about that in reference to family and, and expenses for parents as they right. age. And so rubber meeting the ground. I don't know exactly what to do because, <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are in this space and I just need to know what you truly believe about pursuing academia, PhDs, happiness, <laughs> careers, can I, can I answer it more broadly, which is to say on a broad level, I think what you're hitting on is that it's really difficult to anticipate happiness in the future and to figure out, we might think that we know mm -hmm. what makes us happy and there's a, there's a whole lot of research suggesting that we're really bad 
at predicting what will make us happy. And so sorry, this is not the specific answer to your question, but uh, in a more general way, uh, we have a really hard time figuring out what things will do will bring us happiness and what won't. And we sometimes, we sometimes overestimate the duration of how long something will affect us or, or underestimate it depending on the type of thing. Uh, and so I think that academic, academia as a career question can be something we talk about separately over yeah, I was gonna many say drinks. That, but the, <laughs> the answer would be at, at the reception. Come talk to us and then we can sort of yeah. speak specifically to your experience. Of I mean, would whether you generally it. say a career in academia is a happy one? I think it actually goes back to the gentleman's question before, if, is that it's not for everyone. I love my job, and I suspect these guys do too, but I can very clearly and honestly say it's not for everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, I'm Amy Tangerine, and I am a professional scrapbooker. So I actually really enjoy being present in the moment, documenting things, mm -hmm. and then looking back on those memories and sharing them with others. And people often ask me, well, what's one thing that you've done in your life that has made you such a happy person? And I think that being grateful is contributing to that. And I would just love to hear from each of you, what's one thing that you've shifted either on <laughs> your day-to-day -day basis to make you happier? I mean, for example, when I read Gretchen Rubin's book, The Happiness Project, she suggests making your bed in the morning, and that has really <laughs> changed my life. I don't know, I never made my bed when I was younger, and now I do. And it's just a small shift that we can maybe all apply to our lives to be happier people. I will say on that very small detail note that I bought this incredible wood-handled scrubber in, <laughs> in, in a Japanese houseware store. Mm -hmm. And it is, makes me so happy because it cleans perfectly. And it's a beautiful object that I can look at every day by my sink. I love it. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Ne next book, The Scrubber Solution. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I love that question. Uh, one of the things that I think I've tried to do recently is, this is going to sound, this is going to sound boring, but I've tried to um, create more sort of traditions and routines. Uh, so every Tuesday now, I take my daughter to breakfast at the same restaurant. Mm -hmm. And it is is something that every week I look forward to, she looks forward to, sometimes we let my wife come too, but it's normally <laughs> just, just us. And uh, uh, just, just having that sort of consistency in the routine uh, has been a really nice uh, thing. I also feel like a regular at a place for the first time in my life, and so that's, that also makes me happy, but that may be my own thing. Um. I, I'm trying to think of like a singular thing because as you know, we've been studying this for so long and my husband always <laughs> is sort of frustrated. He's like, you can never, you know, argue, he can't argue with me because it's like if happiness is the answer, it's like, we're doing this because it will make us happier. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to argue against that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I, I think actually what I've said before and because it translates into a lot of things is just focusing on time. Um, and that comes... In, in different ways, and, and it makes you really deliberate in how you spend your time. So if you are stuck in, you know, like in a commute, optimize that time. You know, pick up the phone and call like your friend whom you haven't spoken to in a while. Um, or, and also realizing that time is really precious. Um, and so uh, we've been talking about 
you know, with this trade-off of time versus money, I think the reason that people focus so much on money is because it's really concrete. There's a number associated with it. So it's so easy when given an opportunity, you know, come do this thing, you'll be paid this much, but it takes a weekend away from your little kids of like, oh, my little kids, you know, they're there. But if you actually calculate how many weekends there are left with your little kids when they actually want to hang out with you, then it becomes really small. Um, and then in, in making it more concrete, I think it helps in um, sort of choosing on the time side. Yeah, it's such a hard question. So my, my biggest interest right now is connection and how to, like, what does it mean to when you truly connect with someone and how to foster connection? I really think that connection is what makes life worth living. Um, and so I decided, like, I guess like a year ago, to connect more, and it sounds like a big thing, but it doesn't have to be a big thing. So um, it means engaging in less small talk, and so you can go right. It doesn't have to be like deep conversation. I mean, it, it can be. So I reconnected with a friend from grad school I hadn't seen in like 20 years, and I asked him like, "What was it really like for you, like in grad school?" And he said it was awful, and you know that was like that led to a really great conversation. Not like really horrible conversation, but just really nice conversation. Um, or just, you know, again, less small talk, I guess, would, would be my sort of little life hack for, for connecting with others. All right. Well, before we close, I'd like to thank the UCLA Anderson School of Management for co-presenting this fascinating discussion tonight. Also, I'd like to thank all of you for joining us. Um, we had an overflow crowd tonight. Also, if you didn't have a chance to ask a question tonight, or if you were in the simulcast room down the hall, please stick around for the reception. Come drag a, grab a drink with us. All of our featured guests will be there. And finally, a big final round of applause for our panelists this evening. Thank you so much.